Okay, we're talking about Encountering Jesus. This is our new series on Sunday mornings. Uh, we're going to talk about Nicodemus today. Of course, that was the reading just a moment ago. Uh, we're going to encounter Jesus over the next few months in mostly chronological order. I say mostly because, of course, the Gospels are not all written in the same order. There is some differences in the order. Uh, I would say Luke is the base, chronological base, but we have a lot of stories that are not in Luke, a lot of stories in John. So it's going to be mostly chronological order through the life of Jesus. I'm not going to say all of these things. That's what we're going to be studying over the next few months as we think about who Jesus was, what sort of things he cared about, how he treated people, how he talked about things. Some of it's doctrinal, some of it's miracles, some of it's relationships, some of it's his emotions, some of it's his, his actions. We're going to get the broad sort of scope of Jesus' life. If you want a copy of this, I'll get you a copy if you want to be preparing for the next few months. And so the first one, our first one-on-one -on -one encounter takes place at the beginning of his ministry. This is very early on in, in the story of John, of course, right after his baptism. In the dead of night, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. John 3, 1 through 4. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we're going to focus on the word rabbi in just a minute. We know that you're a teacher uh, come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. By this point, of course, he's already performed the miracle at Cana. He's already done several miracles at this point. So he's established himself with this supernatural power. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The sequencing is weird. And I've always wondered about this in the Gospels, how much the narrative is compressed. Because we know in some places the narrative is very compressed. Uh, we have, we have uh, the stories shortened down for, for narrative purposes. And I do wonder, is this exactly how it went? Nicodemus comes to him, shows up in an alley. Number one, how did they know to meet? Like, did Nicodemus send somebody, hey, Jesus, meet me here at 2 a.m.? Like, was it like spy work here? I don't, I don't know exactly. Did, is Jesus just wandering around dark alleys at night? Did they have a prearranged meeting? I don't know. We don't have any idea. And Nicodemus comes to him and says, Rabbi, and then Jesus answers with this statement. Unless one is born again, of, uh, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? A couple of things. Why by night? Why does Nicodemus come at night? This is an important part of the story. We already see the reason. A man of the Pharisees. He does not want to see Jesus in the day. He doesn't want anybody to know that he's meeting Jesus. His reputation is on the line. His co-workers would hate him. His fellow Pharisees would be upset. He wants to talk to Jesus, but he doesn't want anybody to know he's doing it. That's why he comes at night. And we think about this for today. People who are interested in Jesus, people who have an inkling, who have somewhat of an awareness that something unusual is going on with Jesus. He has some significance, some power but if I go full into Jesus, it's going to affect my family, my relationships, my job. So I just want to dip my toe in, right? I just, I just want to, like, what's this Jesus guy got going on here? People still do this today, right? Even though we can't encounter Jesus physically, this is what people do. They sort of just want to do it in secret. They want to sort of experiment with Christianity. Second note, when did Jesus become a rabbi? Because we know, we read this last week, we looked at all those stories. He did not grow up being a rabbi. Rabbis were not uncommon in first century Israel. Rabbi just means teacher. But it was a special kind of teacher. They're the primary academics in Israel. They're not sequestered in the university, but they are the academics who travel. They go around 
speaking and teaching and, and gathering disciples. They're the intellectual keepers of culture and religion in Israel. Not just religious culture, but a lot of different things about tradition and how you treat family. And, and there's this whole apparatus built up on the law that is called in various places in the New Testament, the tradition of the elders which is not just the Torah, but it's a variety of different things in Israel. The rabbis are the keepers of that, various interpretations of it. They're the masters in the discipleship model. Why they're traveling around from place to place is in part to teach, but really to gain disciples, to gain followers who are going to teach what they teach. All the rabbis had their own particular interpretation of all the things in the law and the tradition of the elders, and they wanted to perpetuate that. They wanted to get more people to believe what they believed. And yet we saw last week, Jesus did not train to be a rabbi. John 17, or John 7, 15, they say, how, where did this man get this? He, he has no learning. He has no education. The people in his hometown, they didn't think he had any special wisdom. He goes back to his hometown and they're like, where did he get this wisdom? This is just the carpenter. So Jesus not trained in this. He didn't grow up in this. He's entered into a new phase of his life. And the question that we really comes off of last week leading into this week. How did Jesus become this special teacher, this keeper of wisdom and knowledge that Nicodemus clearly thinks is special enough to seek out? Nicodemus recognizes, man, this guy's got it going on. This guy's got some interesting things to say. This guy has some new wisdom that I'm going to go figure out, but in secret. I don't, I don't want anybody to know because he's a disciple of the Pharisees. They have their own rabbis. They have their own teachers. They have their own people. And Nicodemus is running a risk here by coming to this new rabbi that his old friends, his old co-workers, his old Pharisee buddies, they're going to be very unhappy that Nicodemus is doing this. So with this in mind, let's return to John chapter 3 and read this again. With this in mind, Jesus is a rabbi, very unusual in the culture. Nicodemus, understanding that something special is going on, how did this come to be? John 3, 1 through 4, we'll read it again. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus, er, Jesus answered him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? This is the discipleship model. You have the master, the rabbi, you have the student who is learning. And we begin a dialogue, very similar in any sort of academic setting, right? We have a dialogue of instruction and teaching and questions. And the first major teaching, one of the first, I shouldn't say the first, one of the first major teachings of Jesus the rabbi involves transformation. That's what being born again is, right? It's transformation. Jesus is talking about change. And we can immediately see at least one change that needs to happen in Nicodemus's life. He's a Pharisee. He needs to become a disciple of Jesus. That's a transformation. But there's a deeper transformation, of course, that Jesus is referring to here. This idea of being born again. It's not just you can't be my disciple, although he'll say that later. You cannot see the kingdom of God. And that would be very interesting to Nicodemus, who believes he's in the kingdom of God, right? That's Israel. Now, they don't have a kingdom right now. Rome is occupying them. 
But Nicodemus, as a Pharisee, as any other religious elite in Israel, they'd be looking for this kingdom, the reestablishment of the kingdom. And the messianic figure in the Old Testament leading into Jesus' life, they're all looking for this guy. He's going to drive the Romans out. He's going to rebuild the kingdom. And so maybe he's thinking, oh, Jesus is the guy. He's going to rebuild the kingdom. But Jesus begins with, you got to be born again if you're going to enter the kingdom. If you're going to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what, what does that even mean? What, what are you talking about, Jesus? This weird transformation. Now, Jesus had clearly already undergone this transformation. Now, we need to be clear. We're not saying that Jesus transformed from a sinner to a non-sinner. But we've already discussed the transformation that Jesus underwent, right? Though he knew of his heavenly father, he had great insight. Remember, he did not begin his ministry until he was 30 years old. He's been a carpenter this whole time. That's one transformation. From carpenter to rabbi. From ordinary dude to miracle worker. What does Nicodemus immediately say? We know you come from God because nobody can do these signs. The things that Jesus is doing. This transformation that's taking place in the way that people perceive Jesus. This normal carpenter guy to now he's a rabbi who does these amazing miracles. And of course in Jesus' life, in his teaching, his transition from earthly son. That's what his family said, right? Isn't this Joseph's son? But now Jesus is thinking about things and wants people to think about things in a different way. Not the earthly son, but the heavenly son. The son that's sent from God. And of course he's going to allude to that later on when he talks about Moses in the wilderness. The son of man will be lifted up. Thinking about not his son of man, Joseph. The son of man, God in the flesh. Nicodemus, unlike many of the Pharisees, was at least honest enough, intellectually honest enough, to admit that something special and holy was going on with Jesus. He wasn't sure what. He didn't have all the details. That's why he's going. But he sees something unusual in Jesus. And so it's telling that Jesus' first teaching involves this transformation. Because Nicodemus, he recognizes something. But Nicodemus is going to have to transform too. If he wants to be a disciple. If he wants to follow Jesus. There's going to have to be some rebirth and renewal in, in Nicodemus' life, just like it had been in Jesus' life. And so one of the first things Jesus does is emphasize, A, the need. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But the process of this transformation. John 3, 5 through 8. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So, Unless you're born again, Nicodemus is like, well, how does that work? Are you going to go back in your mother's womb? That's ridiculous. And so Jesus clarifies, right? Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel, I said to you, you must be born again. It's interesting that Jesus says that. Of course, it is an unusual statement. Don't, don't wonder about it. Don't be worried. Don't be confused. Understand the wind blows where it wishes, you hear its sound, you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. First thing, how is this transformation accomplished? By the Holy Spirit. People being born again, not of the flesh, not going back into their mother's womb and born, being born again, but this spiritual rebirth, born of the water and of the Spirit. And as one is reborn of the Spirit, they are then led and directed by the Spirit. That's the idea of the wind going where it goes. The Spirit is directing where the new person, the person who has been born again, is going. 
The direction of the life is determined not by friends or family or by coworkers or by education or by what you used to do or your, your hobbies, your priorities. The direction of one's life is led by the Spirit. Now, of course, Jesus, we understand, was conceived of the Holy Spirit, Matthew 1.20, in his birth, right? His original birth, physical birth. But it's important to note that Jesus had been born again by the time of his meeting with Nicodemus. And in fact, this is the event that kicks off his ministry. Remember, he's a carpenter. He's a regular dude. He's doing regular dude stuff and paying bills and, and building tables or chairs or whatever it is. I don't know. But there's an event that signals the beginning of his ministry. And the event that signals the beginning of his ministry is a rebirth of water and the Spirit. Matthew uh, 3 verse 13. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. And Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And he consented. When Jesus was baptized, immediately went up from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I have, uh, with whom I am well pleased. The transformation from Joseph's son to God's son is taking place here. This is my beloved son. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit because what is it? So it is with those who are born of the Spirit. The wind blows where it wishes and you don't know where it's coming or where it's going. So it is by those of the Spirit. What happens immediately next? Jesus led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And that, of course, is what happens in the, devil, in the temptation. We, that's a famous story in Matthew chapter 4. John says it this way. John 32, uh, 1 verse 32. John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. And here's the important thing that John includes that the other gospel writers don't include. And it remained on him. This vision of the dove, the dove descending, the Spirit descending, remains on Jesus. It doesn't go away. From this point forward, what we see in the life of Jesus very clearly, led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, motivated by the Spirit, doing all these mighty works through the Spirit of God because the Spirit has descended and remained upon him. He has been transformed into this fully realized minister, rabbi, that he's going to spend the rest of his life as, right? The next three years. This rabbi, teacher, miracle worker, who is going to demonstrate to the people around him, this is what righteousness looks like. This is what God wants you to be. This is how God wants you to live. And ultimately, he's going to die because we can't do it. Because we're failures. That begins here. And it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, it is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. That's an important idea. Just hold on to that. I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. Luke says it uh, immediately after he has this encounter in the synagogue. Jesus goes to the synagogue. He is, as is common, different people get up to read different places in the, in the Torah, in the old law. Well, it wouldn't be the Torah, but in the Old Testament. This is a prophet, Isaiah. He gets up to read this scroll and just by happenstance, coincidentally, of course we know it's not coincidence, he opens the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, was given to him and he unrolled it and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. 
He's given Isaiah, he finds this, and of course he reads a long section from Isaiah. We're not going to read all of it. And he says, you have heard, you have seen this come to pass. This has been fulfilled in your hearing. The spirit of the Lord is upon Jesus. For what? To be a rabbi. To proclaim, to teach, to instruct. Of course, in this case, good news to the poor. Physically poor, yes. He did do a lot with the poor but also spiritually poor. Those who have been separated from God, those who are spiritually destitute. The good news is, what's the good news? You too can be transformed. You too can experience this rebirth. And so Jesus himself modeled and exemplified what it means to be born of the water and the Spirit. And thus it is impossible to answer the question, who was Jesus? without considering the Spirit, the work of the Spirit in his life. One of the things we're going to see as we go through this connection that Jesus shared with the Holy Spirit. A connection that I'm going to suggest very strongly Jesus intended to offer to everyone who would enter the kingdom. His first teaching to Nicodemus, unless you are born of water and the Spirit. Not just Jesus, that happened to Jesus. But now everybody is expected to do this. John 3, 9 through 15. We keep reading in the story. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher in Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Kind of throwing some shade there, Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If, you, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can I tell you uh, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Again, re-emphasizing, I'm not just the Son of Mary and Joseph. I'm the Son of God. I've descended from heaven. And as, uh, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Why that's important? Seeing the kingdom of God is the eternal life, right? Can't have one without the other. Can't be in the kingdom without the eternal life. Can't have eternal life without being in the kingdom. That's what Jesus is trying to emphasize in this first thing. And so, as we conclude, what do we learn from this encounter with Jesus? What do we learn about Jesus? What do we learn about what he cares about, his priorities, how he treated people? First, we see that Jesus was not afraid to confront people with difficult or unexpected teaching. I don't know what Nicodemus expected from Jesus. I am sure it was not this. Nicodemus goes to Jesus. Rabbi, you're obviously from God. Tell me more. Well, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. What? There's no way Nicodemus expected that. But that's what Nicodemus needed to hear. That's what not just Nicodemus, but anyone needs to hear. And when pressed about it, well, how does that work? How are you going to enter into your mother's womb? Like, what, what do you mean, Jesus? He doesn't back down from the truth, even though Nicodemus is confused. The inability to understand truth, the inability to understand, that was not the teaching's fault. That was not Jesus' fault. And he says, are you a teacher in Israel and you don't understand these things? Like, this is basic stuff, man. This, you got to have this. If you're going to understand the rest of the things I'm going to teach you, you can't understand this. Man, when I start telling you the real unusual stuff, the real heavenly stuff, how are you going to believe that? Jesus was not afraid to confront people with the deeper reality around them. To show them their place in that deeper reality. In this case, the deeper reality about the kingdom of God. 
that it's not just for everyone, it's for who? Those who are born again. That's going to lead us into eternal life. Second, we see that even this early on, at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus knows what awaits him. The lifted up refers to number tw Numbers 21. Moses lifts up a serpent on a bronze pole. There's a whole it's a whole big story. You can read it in Numbers 21. For Jesus' point, right? I'm going to be lifted up on a pole. <laughs> Literally lifted up on a pole. We understand that, of course, in the crucifixion. Jesus knew what was coming. Which means that the years of Jesus' life, as we go through the next three years, we're encountering Jesus in all these cases. Jesus is aware of the impending doom. The doom that is approaching. Doom is, a, of course, a, a sort of tongue-in-cheek. It's not a great experience for Jesus. It is doom in the sense there's going to be torture and crucifixion and, and, and horrible experiences. Of course, he doesn't consider it doom. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Doom for anyone, joy for Jesus. Why? Because he wants people to enter the kingdom. And it's only through this being born of the water and the spirit that that can happen. And that can only happen if Jesus is lifted up. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. That's the prerequisite for those of us who would follow him to have this transformation. Because that's the last thing we see. Jesus embodied the kind of transformation he demands from his followers. Born again of the water and the spirit Immersed in water by John, we read that. But then led by the Spirit, directed by the Spirit, rather than his own desire and will, self-crucifixion. Not just at the end of his life, but every day of his life. Crucifying the desires of the flesh, being led by God's Spirit into what God wants done. That's the whole business. Unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. It is the Spirit. Who should lead and direct and guide what we do and say and act, how we act. In this encounter, we see what Jesus expects from those who would follow him. As he himself, of course, was born of the water and the spirit. So must, that's a typo there, so must be any who would enter his kingdom. Jesus, of course, wanted Nicodemus to undergo that transformation. That's the ultimate point, I think, for Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus in the dead of night. Jesus knows, hey, uh, you know... It's great that you're here, but why are we meeting at night again? There's transformation that needs to take place. The first transformation for Nicodemus is, stop caring so much about the Pharisees think and care what I think. Care what God thinks. Don't care so much about them. Care about what the Spirit wants. Such a change demanded that Nicodemus step out of the darkness and into the light fully open and honest about his discipleship to Jesus. And might I suggest that that might be our problem. Can't follow him in the dark. Has to be obvious to everyone. That we have a new master. That we've been transformed. That we've been changed. Because it was obvious to everybody in Jesus' life that that had happened. Wait, isn't this the carpenter's son? Where did this guy get all this stuff? Something unusual is happening here. That should be the case with us. We'll end with John 3, 16 through 21. We pull this verse out of context a lot, but this is where it takes place in this story. Jesus, confronted by Nicodemus, dead of night, teaching about being born of the water and the spirit, entering the kingdom so that people would have eternal life. And then this is where this 
maybe most famous text in the Gospels takes place. In his discussion right here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Remember, he's saying this to Nicodemus. A guy who is not yet willing to commit. Still in the dark. Still hiding. Still unsure. What's Jesus trying to get him to realize? Believe in me. You're, you're, you're almost there, Nicodemus. You understand I'm a rabbi. You understand I'm from God. You're not quite there yet. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light is coming to the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. Why did Nicodemus come at night? Because he didn't want to let go of his old life. And if he comes in the day, his old life is gone. The Pharisees will know he's come to Jesus. They'll outcast him. He, his old life will be gone. He's not ready to give it up. Now, I don't know if his works were evil in that context, but there's no way that Nicodemus is missing that that's what he's talking about. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his work should be exposed. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works are carried out by God. A little bit of a dig at the end here for Nicodemus. You came to me at night, Nicodemus. Whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen. Why are you hiding, Nicodemus? Why come at night? Come to me in the open. Fully commit to belief in me. As we conclude... That's the invitation, right? To come to the light? If you believe in Jesus, and I hope you do, that's a good first step. But what does Jesus say? Unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's for anyone who would follow. What are you waiting for? <laughs>